Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Shannon. And I'm Nick. And we're your co-hosts. So this week, I'm going to get a little seedy, if you know what I mean. Uh, I'm going to be talking about pomegranate. Ooh, very fun. And I will be taking you all on a journey and likely getting lost through a segment on labyrinth magic. Uh, Then we're going to discuss one of the most famous residents of a maze, the Minotaur. Oh my God, the Minotaur and Labyrinth. Uh, Obviously an iconic film, but I do have to say, because we were going to be talking about this, like it's reignited the thing that I do to Eric all the time. And they just frustrate me because they won't buy in when I'm like, you remind me of the babe. And they never go with it. And I'm like, they never, wait, they never say what babe? <laughs> they just don't want to take they, the babe. You have, you have one, fuck. you have two fucking lines. You say I what know. babe and you say what power. And then, yeah. you know, it's, uh, but it's fine. It's fine. It's so fine. I know I'm really excited for you to talk about etymology, though, to top this one off. So. Oh my God, absolutely. But first, did you have a moment this week where you felt magical at all? Oh God, not really. Uh, <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. This has been um, a long week. We're not going to like super get into it, but obviously we have been off the podcast. I had to go back to Texas. There was a lot of stuff happening with my family. And then we all also got the flu. So uh, I'm not dead. And right now to me, that feels the most magical. I, I take that back a little bit. I guess when I started working on this segment today, talking about pomegranates and like their representation in like grief and things like that, it felt very synchronous, like very synchronous in a way that like that was a synchronicity that would have happened a few weeks ago. And it was actually, I was like, I'm going to have to be careful because I'm not going to cry. But that was like, it was one of those things where it's just like the little magic that happens all the time with this podcast where it was like, there was yeah, absolutely yeah, well, no because way we were we were coming. planning on doing this episode before everything went down. Yeah. And then yeah. So um yeah. well I will just say sort of same as last week. Um, you know, it's spring here in Texas. So I think all of this, this sort of weather that's been going on has made me feel very in touch with nature like right now there's there's literally a thunderstorm rolling in which oh, that's so lovely it's it's soothing to the soul it's absolutely yeah. soothing to the soul to just watch a thunderstorm roll in and i love that but so we're gonna talk about labyrinthine magic yay and at the top of my segment here i just wanted to talk a little bit about etymology. So like all y'all out there, don't fucking groan at me. You knew this was coming. And seriously though, in my studies on this topic, I've noticed some glaring inaccuracies, namely in a beloved movie title that needs addressing. Um, yes, of course I'm talking about The Labyrinth, the famous 1986 film by Jim Henson Studios starring David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly. Starring David Bowie's bulge. Starring David Bulgey's Bowie's David <laughs> David Bulgey. Keep that David Bulgey. Oh, definitely. Uh, um, but yeah, the movie should be called The Maze. And you may be asking, why? It means the same thing and Labyrinth sounds so much cooler. Well, you're so fucking wrong, dude. Sit down and learn, okay? 
A labyrinth is defined as a structure with a single through root that may feature twists and turns, but no branches or dead ends. So basically, if you start at the beginning of a labyrinth and follow the path, you will eventually end up at the prescribed end of the labyrinth, either the other side or the center. A maze, however, does have multiple paths to the end, wrong turn, dead ends, and even false starts. So as we can now clearly see, the name of the film is incorrect, and the movie should be called The Really Big Fucking Maze, starring David Bowie's crotch as itself. Yes. But we wanted to talk about labyrinthine magic and some hows and whys. So in order to do this, we need to go back in time over a thousand years and take a look at the pre-Christian British Isles and the Celts. And so the remains of labyrinths have been found all over the Celtic world, indicating that they were a significant part of the ceremonial landscape of Celtic culture, which is really, really, really fucking cool. And of course, with a lot of Celtic beliefs, the assumptions we make are based on limited sources from the time and a healthy amount of educated speculation. But writing things down is so uncool. It's so, and it's really hard. Fuck <laughs> you, dreads. Um, so, but basically the idea was that walking through a labyrinth was a form of meditation that allowed the user to drown out their own thoughts by concentrating on the twists and turns of the path and sort of allowing them to focus on a chant or a mantra. So this would be sort of a whole ceremony. Um, now, I don't know about you guys, but this seems very appealing to me as a modern witch with severe ADHD and a famously loud inner monologue because I'm what? An Aries. Um, it's my... You know, it's like it's screaming. My brain is screaming at me all the time. Yeah, um, but I feel like that's another good place to like really reinforce the importance of like the distinction between a maze and a labyrinth because wandering through a maze absentmindedly does not sound like a good time. No, but absolutely a labyrinth, not. that's but very a labyrinth, meditative. Very meditative. <laughs> uh, and you know, a labyrinth um, doesn't have to, you know, like a maze would have to have walls high enough to um, keep you from seeing over, whereas a labyrinth can be low to the ground, which we're going to talk about making your own labyrinths later on, but but you're, you know, it's fine if you can see sort of where it's going, you know, because there is just one path. So it does not need to be like a maze where it needs to be very tall. Uh, yet another distinction between a labyrinth and a maze. Um, so, but the belief here is that by quieting your mind, your incantation takes on a greater significance and actually, you know, kind of makes it easier for the gods and spirits that you're trying to employ to receive the message, so to speak, um, because it does kind of drown out that background noise. You're like focusing on this task and then you're focusing on what you're saying and you know, everything else kind of falls into the background. Um, with that being said, I did also kind of want to talk about the, the form of a labyrinth besides the height. And in order to do that, I'm jumping forward to the early 2000s, the uh, very, very early 21st century, 
if you will, in the realm of Texas, where a young boy becomes intrigued by witchcraft and magic for the very first time. I'm, of course, talking about myself. Uh, and the story goes that we used to get this catalog called, in, in the mail, you would get a catalog. I, I mean, for all of you people who are maybe younger than 31 or 30 or whatever, um, a catalog is like a magazine full of stuff you can buy. And there's a little order form at the back and you sort of check off what you want and then put a form of payment, either your credit card number or cash. And you send that back in an envelope to where the catalog comes from and then they send you stuff it's all very analog baby very very analog uh, but we used to get this catalog from a place called like pure it was like pyramid or pyramid Dude, pyramid yes 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 I, I remember i um I, I bought a ouija board from pyramid i mean i just remember whenever i would look at pyramid i was like i want every bead curtain oh my god bead curtains so it was full of crystal balls. You could get tarot decks from there. You could get Ouija boards. Famously bought one from there. Um, cloaks, wands. And importantly here, multiple, multiple versions of tabletop labyrinths and labyrinth jewelry. And of course, I was intrigued. And I do love uh, sort of Celtic lore. And so I would sort of draw like the shapes of labyrinths sometimes just as like a um like a fidget even yeah um, just kind of like a little doodle um so but like you know very meditative though and I did find it very very like calming to again very loud brain static um and there's two points I'm making here uh so first of yeah I've always sort of been into Celtic revival witchcraft and also, I do miss catalogs. Wasn't oh my that God. fun? I miss catalogs. I really miss Sky Mall with all the traveling we've had to do recently. Oh, like, yeah. man, I don't know. I get like, save the trees. Obviously, I love the environment. Yeah. But like, how much electricity does it take to power things like the internet and all of those deliveries? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Is the trade-off really actually saving the planet to get rid of catalogs? I'm not. I'm not entirely sold. Also, Sky Mall is like a mall in the sky that you yeah. can shop at um, while you fly. So yeah, where else are you supposed to get like very bizarre like indoor dog potty pads under tents in the theme of Harry Potter? Like, uh, what, or 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 uh, famously, every catalog has to have a tabletop fountain. Oh yeah, I mean, I have eight. So, I mean, but truly, though, every catalog, like not just Pyramid, not just Sky Mall, every catalog has a tabletop fountain in it. At least one. It's catalog because culture. Who doesn't need several tabletop fountains? I like the noise. So I just, you know, I want one for every room. Yeah, I love constantly feeling like I have to pee. But okay, okay, okay. Truly, though, the point is that Anyone who remembers that will be familiar with the classic Celtic labyrinth shape, uh, which is a circle with sort of four quadrants of switchbacks. And so those kind of look like pie slices. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm going to post a picture of one when the episode comes out. Um, but yeah, so it's, um, you know, four quadrants and they switch back like a mountain road. 
back and forth, you know, getting dangerously close to the center. And then, then the next quadrant, you go back out to the edge. And then the next quadrant, you go back to the center. And then in the next quadrant, you, you get out, you get out. Um, and this is sort of the most complex version of a labyrinth. Um, and it really does sort of fill the whole circle. Um, but some of the archeological remains indicate that they were also sometimes just large spirals. And that's sort of the, the very, very simple, easy to do version. And I want you guys to pop a pen in that because we're gonna touch on that later on. Um, but the complex type, while in practical use was also the inspiration for the jewelry and shield decorations of labyrinths that do kind of let us know that these labyrinths were very important culturally to the Celtic people. Um, and a fun side note here, though, is that the complex style of labyrinth went on to become a popular pattern for hedge mazes. They're not mazes if they don't have dead ends or turns. Um, yeah, at stately homes and chateaus and the like. So really another way to kind of spot, is it a hedge maze or is it a hedge labyrinth, is um, if the hedges are waist high and you can see over the edges, then it is a, a hedge labyrinth. If the hedges are person height and you cannot see over the edges and also there's uh, wrong turns and um, what they call in the movie the labyrinth, the, the oubliette even, you know, little dead ends with like fountains and statues yeah. and stuff. Because oublié en français means to forget. Right. And um, yeah, so you would put a little statue or a fountain in there and it's like, oh, you got distracted. Um, Whoopsie-doo. Whoopsie-doo. But so, but the complex style of labyrinth does appear in lots and lots of landscape designs for stately homes, which is very, very cool. So there's a little, little tidbit for all my Bridgerton and Downton Abbey people out there. Um, but concerning the function, it should be noted that like the simple spiral type, a labyrinth can actually be any shape as the act of walking on it and focusing your mind on the path is really the, truly the point. And that actually takes us to Peru. And now how the fuck did we end up in Peru? Well, in the nature of labyrinths, having one path, we were always going to end up in Peru. So do not worry. Um, you should be focusing on, on your task at hand. But why are we in Peru? Because of the Nazca lines. And this was actually my favorite thing that I learned. I learned this while doing my research for this segment. Um, so the really interesting thing is that a lot of archaeologists think the Nazca lines may have been a form of labyrinth. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination when you see the stylized pattern of not only switchback lines, but also spirals as a really similar creation to a Celtic labyrinth. I mean, it really does not take that much imagination at all. But, you know, like, I, I mean, I don't think it was aliens, but um, it is definitely possibly a labyrinth so yeah just because it wasn't white people doesn't mean it was aliens history <laughs> yeah. channel yep yep um 
But it is even speculated that the different animals could have either been a zodiac, which would mean that you would use a different labyrinth depending on the time of the year, but they could also have been purpose-specific and sort of tied to different spirits or deities in that ancient Peruvian pantheon. So uh, really depending on maybe uh, perhaps, and this is speculative, but depending on what you were trying to do, what god you were trying to contact, you would walk the labyrinth um, of, of a different shape. And they have this hole in the Atacama Desert. It's a whole plane of them. So obviously they must have had different purposes. They're different animals. They're in different locations. Um, and it really That's is- mis- so cool. It's so fucking cool. Um, so now we know a little bit about the history of labyrinths, but you're probably saying to yourself, how can I incorporate this into my craft? And fuck you, I'm getting there. So I think the easiest way to get some labyrinth magic into your life is to practice drawing some, like little 12-year-old Nick was doing back in the day. And you can even incorporate the shape of a specific initial or a simple sigil, or you could go Nazca style and put animal shapes, plant shapes, like really, you know, like, this is sort of making it your own. Um, and the roots of the practice being what they are, though, the truest way to do this work is going to be going outside in the grass, under the moon even. Um, and you guys remember when I asked you to put a pin in that, when we talk about simple spiral labyrinths, um, perfectly acceptable and historically accurate. So why not start there? Um, And here's where that comes into play. A modern witch with a yard or easy access to a green area might go about creating their own labyrinth with rocks or even large sticks. And I've seen some labyrinths uh, online with uh, brick pavers, you know, uh, brick landscaping pavers. Um, you know, you could really just make a, a spiral walkway with some brick pavers. Um, yeah, I wanted to like hop in and say when Eric and I, for my birthday, Eric took me to a few different public gardens. And at one of the public gardens we went to, there was like a school project that one of the elementary schools had done where they laid a spiral labyrinth in part of the garden. And it was just done with like the polished stones. And it was so precious but also so pretty and it's like if an elementary school class can do it i mean exactly exactly and um you know i think river rocks speaking of polished rocks i think river rocks you know like smooth sort of gray and you kind of get that like ancient ruins feel from rocks like that too oh yeah and bonus Um, points if you can find a hag stone for the center oh hell to the fuck yeah right um so but again even just sticks and limbs um and like absolutely the act of creating a labyrinth does constitute a spell in and of itself but the shape of labyrinth is also said to channel energies attract spirits and sort of again amplify messages to deities So this could be a very good place to do castings outdoors is sort of at the center of your labyrinth. Um, And since this is wands and fronds, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention 
that planting flowers and other plants in the shape of a spiral to create a path would be a very green witch way to create a labyrinth. And I, you know, I, this is just something that I thought of, but I'm throwing it in there because if you have tall grass in your backyard, you could literally get out the weed whacker and do like a, a labyrinth crop circle. I just love how Texas it is that you called it a weed whacker. I, I, initially wrote weed eater but then like the voice in my head was like it's not a weed eater it's a weed whacker it's like uh, you don't call it a weed eater don't I play don't, I, don't, I don't yeah I can't I, I can't put on that facade um but yeah the crop circle style labyrinth we do love that um and but again this is really a place to make something that is uniquely yours and ultimately, like, what could be more dramatic and witchy than, say, quarreling with your lover and exclaiming, I'm going outside to walk the labyrinth. And then you, like, put on your cloak oh. from, the, from the pyramid catalog and, um, you know, just, just sort of angrily walk the labyrinth. Oh, I love that. I also feel like it's such a good, like... It's a good thing you could do if you're a parent and you have, you know, little witchlings that you want to help get involved. You could put like little, you could do it on like a fairy mound. You could even do throughout the labyrinth, little fairy houses and things like you could really go as big or as simple with this as you want. That's And that's what I like about it, because unlike a maze, again, you're not trying to like trick someone or like have like wrong turns or anything so like really you can be just very very simple with it and yeah. i even like like the sort of like the celtic ruin version of a labyrinth where it's like just a spiral or like a a switchback of rocks with like grass growing on and around it like just very yeah. like just very like ancient and mystical looking but like that would be so easy to do in your yard if you just I mean, you know, they sell river rocks at Home Depot, people. Like, you know, yeah. like, it's, um, you don't even have Five to- $5 a bag. It's like, not really, going to be it's, a budget buster. And it's going to look good. So, you yeah. know, like, I'm just thinking, like, next time you want to have a full moon bomb. And here's what, here's what I'm saying. If perhaps you did want to go through with this, and you perhaps decided- to also use those river rocks to make a fire pit for your full moon fires at the center of your labyrinth. I don't think anyone would be mad about that. No, not and if at you all. Do, and if you do that, or if you have a French chateau that you'd like to invite us to for a vacation and an artist retreat, um, please shoot us an email at wantsandfrontspod at gmail.com. Yeah. And or you can uh, message us on Instagram at wantsandfrontspod. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's an invitation I desperately crave. Yeah, I would definitely not turn that down. Well, that was excellent. I'm so glad that we all learned a little bit more about labyrinths today. Um, <laughs> I definitely want to build a labyrinth somewhere. I was literally sitting here. I was like, where could I make this work outside okay, of so my you house? Know, you know, where I'm thinking, where I'm thinking, actually. So we all know about my very famous um, magical spring that I like to go to. And um, the riverbed there is scattered with like these like gray shale river rocks. And, you know, shale like really, really just like cracks apart so, so, so easily and into these irregular shapes, which often have like sort of sharp angles and triangles and stuff. 
And it's this beautiful, beautiful gray slate color though. And um, there's a lot of it there. And then there's a little, there's like a forest that's not part of the green belt because it's like off the path. And um, there's a few abandoned encampments in there, but that's neither here nor there. That's neither here nor there. The abandoned camp- encampments, of course, let me know that not a lot of hikers go through the area. Yeah. Um, because I'm a weirdo and I like to go deep into the woods uh, because you might see a snake or something in there. And that's kind of fucking cool. Right. Oh my God. I saw a big ass lizard the other day in my garden and I was like, I got startled by it, but I was so excited to see him. Oh, I exactly. Just, exactly. He was you huge know? though. Like, like a foot long, big ass lizard. But um, it's partially a, a washout zone for the Creek, the, the spot that I'm talking about. So the grass does not grow super thick there. And um, I think that'd be just such a great little spot. And maybe have it like wind through the trees a little bit even. Oh, um, yes. So that's sort of what I'm thinking. It might be, maybe maybe that'll be my summer project. I'll just, and, and good exercise too, you know, go out in the sun and uh, move some river rocks and make a labyrinth in the woods. Mm, that sounds delicious. Well, pomegranate y'all this was a topic that kind of like blindsided me nick and i had gone through a planning session and we'd been talking about a labyrinth themed episode and i just like could not come up with the plant that i wanted to do but then inspiration struck like literally i was sitting on the couch afterwards and i was like oh fuck man pomegranates and originally it was like because of the innards of pomegranates it's what was like making that labyrinth connection for me you know what i mean with the pith the way it kind of like oh, meanders through the yes, fruit yes yes Be- because uh pomegranates are full of dead ends and uh, wrong turns even. Yes, so many oubliettes. Um, But it's also just like such a witchy fruit and I know that they're not in season right now but this is the time to plant the trees if you wanted to grow pomegranates. So it's not like it's totally weird to be talking about it right now. Exactly. Pomegranate or Punica granatum is a fruit bearing deciduous shrub that's native to a region that spans from modern day Iran to northern India. You'll often see them historically referred to as being from Persia because they used to be called that's, Persia. That's what they, that, that is, uh, Iran to northern India used to be called. Persia. 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 So the plants also vary wildly in size. Like you can have them that are just like a few feet tall. There are dwarf varieties that they use as like shrub borders that you could potentially use for something like a labyrinth all the way up to like big ass trees that are over 30 feet tall. And pomegranate was introduced into Spanish America in the late 16th century and then made its way into California by way of Spanish settlers in 1769 and so i just wanted to like point that out because even today there are actually pomegranate trees all over the place in california like actually my uh my vet's office has one growing like in the parking lot there's literally a pomegranate tree that like hangs over the like back end of the vet's office anyway so But pomegranates have been domesticated as early as the 5th millennium BC, and they're actually one of the very first domesticated fruit trees ever. So this is like ancient. Some people also have speculated. I I, I would, I would, um, 
just like to pop in here for everyone that's been waiting to take a drink and say that um, parts of Mesopotamia were in uh, what is now Persia or what became Persia. Oh, oh, you just wait. No, no, I get Mesopotamia in there. Oh, we, we, we're going to get Mesopotamia in here. They, um, they fucking loved pomegranates. They did. So uh, anyway, like I was about to say, Nicholas. <laughs> oh my God. There is it really that close? Mesopotamian cuneiform <laughs> records that mention pomegranates from the mid third millennium BC. So there you go. Take a drink, a second drink. We're talking Mesopotamia. Um, waterlogged pomegranate remains were found at the circa 14th century BC Uluburun shipwreck off the coast of Turkey, uh, along with some goods like perfume, ivory, and gold jewelry. So we can assume like pomegranates were considered a luxury good, right? And other archaeological finds of pomegranate remains have been like from like the late Bronze Age are typically in like the super bougie homes of like the very elite, the very wealthy. So we're pretty certain it's the case, right? Like pomegranates were for the well-to-do. So the fruit itself is in season from October to about February in the Northern Hemisphere, which aligns almost perfectly with Persephone's time in the underworld. Because as we all know, in the myth, Persephone was bound to the underworld for six months out of the year because she ate six seeds from a pomegranate. And if you want to grow a pomegranate tree, though, you're in luck if you live in zones seven to 10 in the U.S., they are actually like really resistant to pests too, but you can open yourself up to some problems if you overwater because once they're established, they're actually like remarkably drought tolerant. I mean, think about Northern India. You're not exactly getting like it's regular. Arid, it's a pretty arid climate. Yeah. It's not the UK. Like you're not getting like regular misty days. So, well, and, you... and the reason, the reason for that though, famously is because there's a huge rain shadow coming from the Himalayas, which not only causes the monsoon on one side, but keeps it very, very dry on the Persia side. Yeah. So these are actually a really great fruit tree if you live somewhere in zone 7 to 10 that's prone to drought. Uh, you do want to take care, though, when you're selecting your variety, because more and more there are like decorative pomegranate trees that are being bred uh, that aren't going to give you like super good fruit which i'm assuming if you're growing a pomegranate tree that's probably what you're growing it for but oh my god like the like the dwarf pomegranates that are like this big that don't taste and, like anything but then also it's like pomegranates are already hard to open so it's like you you, you like crack open a mini pomegranate you get like you know a, a persephone sized portion of pomegranate seeds six seeds they, they don't taste good and th and then you've probably like gotten a cut under your fingernails just trying to get in there so fuck yeah. the fuck those tiny little pomegranates i'm, I'm gonna yeah. say it fuck they're really not worth it um i will say the wonderful pomegranate is actually the most common cultivar in the u.s and it's gonna have that familiar that's kind of like it's the sweet but slightly tart pomegranate flavor that you're used to um there are some sweeter cultivars but like Literally 90% of the pomegranates grown in the U.S. are from wonderful pomegranates, which is like the wonderful company. We can talk about the problems with the fucking Resnicks all day, every day, but it's a pretty safe bet. The wonderful pomegranate is a very good cultivar for you. You do want to plant it in full sun and well-draining soil. Remember, if you don't know if your soil is well-draining, dig a hole about a foot down, fill it halfway up with water, come back in half an hour. Is the hole drained? Great. 
your soil drains just <laughs> fine. Well draining soil. If it's not, you got a fucking problem and we're going to have to deal with that. But that is a much bigger issue to deal with. So for the first year or two, anytime you plant a tree, you need to regularly water it, right? It's like thinking about how long it takes a tree to get established is very different than like you're transplanting like a honeysuckle bush or something, right? Like it literally can take up to two years for a tree to be established. So during that time, you're going to want to make sure you're watering it pretty regularly, usually about like twice a week, sometimes daily though, when it's really hot, um, you do want to plant it once the danger of frost has passed. And I know for a lot of people, this safe time to plant is going to be around mother's day. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. I think for a lot of people that live on like the east coast and places that do get more regular freezes than we do so if you're interested now's about the time to start shopping around um and then once you like get it in the ground you want to make sure that the soil of course is like kind of loose but i wouldn't go through and like till it up you don't want to put a bunch of like super nutrient dense stuff in the hole where you're planting your tree because then what you're going to do is basically encourage the roots to stay put like you don't want to like totally compost like this little hole that you're putting the roots in because you want them to like stretch out to find their stuff you you shouldn't (laughs) coddle them Yeah, don't coddle them. Survival of the fittest. Uh, I would say, though, mulch around the base of the tree when you plant it. And this is really good for, like, any foods that you're growing in general, mulching around the base. Because one of the problems that you have to watch out for is, like, issues that come from, like, getting the foliage wet. Because think about it. If you splash the dirt and the dirty water splashes up, then whatever bacteria and shit is in that soil is on the leaves, and then it becomes a problem. That's why they always say you should, like, mulch tomatoes and stuff. Same thing with baby trees. But the good news is, like, once it's fully established, unless you're going through, like, a super intense drought, you really don't have to fuck with pomegranate trees. Like, they're designed for this to, like, grow in droughts and make delicious fruit. Um, Be warned that it will be at least two, maybe three years before you get fruit on the pomegranate tree once you plant it. It just takes them time to establish. It's really the case with most fruiting trees unless you're getting something that's been um, grafted, which a lot of times if you're getting like lemon trees that are super small and producing lemons, it's probably because it's actually grafted from a more mature lemon plant onto a little like smaller lemon plant bottom half. So... That's some weird plant science that we're not going to get into, but it'll take a few years. So during the couple of years while you're waiting, you're going to actually want to be fertilizing it twice a year. Then you're going to cut back to once a year when you're getting the fruit out of it. And just like a good balanced fertilizer, uh, you're going to want to make sure that you're pruning any diseased looking branches or foliage. Um, If it gets suckers, which are basically new trees that are growing off of it, you'll want to cut those off. That way it can focus on continuing to like grow in the base of like your baby tree um and then yeah once you do have fruit remember pomegranates will not continue to ripen once they're harvested you have to wait to harvest them these aren't like bananas or avocados that you can like pick while they're underripe and like throw them in a paper bag Mm -hmm. like doesn't work that way fruits on the inside y'all um when they're ready you can actually tell with a pomegranate because they start taking on kind of more of a hexagonal shape if you've ever noticed like a good ripe pomegranate isn't like a perfect globe right it's kind of got slightly flattened edges 
that's really when they're ready. Uh, you also can't just like yank it off the tree. Uh, it's going to damage the branch. It's probably going to fuck up your fruit. Just take like some shears, shear it off right close to the crown. Um, and then they're good on the cabinet for like one to three weeks. Uh, they can be kept for up to like two months in the fridge. So fresh pomegranates actually keep a lot longer than the weird shit you're getting at the grocery store. So very much worth it. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time getting into like herbalism with this one because it's really not something that's got like a specific use. Like it's an antioxidant. It's great for your immune system. But there was this whole thing in like the early aughts and like the 90s, if you're of a certain age that you'll remember about how like pomegranates prevent cancer. Uh, and that was like really overblown hype from like Palm Wonderful Company and the Resnicks and the FDA eventually told them like you need to fucking stop. There's no proof that like pomegranates prevent cancer. So like... That was a time. But, I mean, but the demand did drive the price of pomegranate juice to what is still a pretty steep. It is, especially for a fruit that tag. like has been in the United States since the 1700s. Like this, right, right, right. This isn't some weird exotic fruit. It's like this shit's been here since before the United States was the United States. Right. It seems silly for it to be so expensive. It's almost like it's almost like oranges too. Speaking of fruits that uh, were heavily cultivated by the Spanish, it's like. Um, if, if 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 someone said orange juice prevents cancer, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if you had to pay like twenty dollars for like a half gallon of orange juice or some can, shit? Can you imagine if people had listened to us during COVID and just like gone fuck all on oranges and then they were fine? Okay, uh, I did read. Okay, I I'm gonna I'm gonna let you finish. I'm gonna let you finish. <laughs> Thanks, Kanye. <laughs> but no, I did read yet another study recently, and I'm not gonna like quote it but it did say that the number one vitamin deficiency in the united states is vitamin d so i was right all along and um get that d anyway do go on do go on you can also get it from pomegranates if you like have a pomegranate tree they've got really (laughs) great vitamin levels um they're also supposed to be really good for like blood pressure issues but again it's like It's very different with fruits than herbs because I feel like herbs have a tendency to be more like directly medicinal and you can make like teas and tinctures. And I just don't want to like buy into this whole like eating a shit ton of carrots will give you 2020 vision. Like that's so weird. But but I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing. That was British propaganda anyway. Yeah. Eating a shit ton of carrots will just turn you orange. Which is great. Which if you are wanting to like be a pundit on Fox News... Load up right. on carrots. <laughs> Load but, up on uh, carrots. Fr- <laughs> or, or if you're wanting to go to the Jersey Shore, you know, they they love that orange, that they do. Mus- muscular orange look mm. there. In vogue. So let's talk about magic, though, y'all. So pomegranates. They're associated with the planet Saturn, the Earth element, the zodiac sign Scorpio, and, of course, the deities Persephone and Hecate. And it will surprise no one that entering Hecate's garden made a big appearance as a source for this topic. Shocker. Uh, One of the things that Cindy Brannon refers to pomegranates um, is she calls them, like, a source of the hero's pyre or, like, the sacred fire, which... The sacred fire in Hecatean witchcraft is the thing that basically you can use it to like deepen your experience of the feminine mysteries, like your connection to departed loved ones. And it also has the power to bring like rebirth to those who are deemed worthy. So pomegranates in Hecatean witchcraft are um, kind of a big deal. 
And pomegranate, though, it's associated with chthonic powers, right? Like, because of the connection to, like, Persephone and the underworld and Hecate. And they're closely tied to grief when you think about Demeter's grief when Persephone is taken from her. Um, but in a similar vein to kind of, like, chthonic deities, we also see a lot of duality and the magical properties of pomegranate. Two in particular that really popped out as, like, abundance and banishing, and then also clarity and deception. So I think when you're working with it magic pomegranate's a plant ally that like you really need to be clear in what role you're asking it to play in your spell work right like this is one that can kind of like swing both ways so you just want to make sure that you're like really setting intentions and being very clear but pomegranates are also useful in magic for like rebirth love forgiveness like essentially if it has something to do with shadow work pomegranate can probably help so you can use the seeds as offerings and of course use it in like kitchen magic uh grenadine historically was actually concentrated pomegranate juice like as a syrup check the ingredients because a lot of grenadine now is not it's like artificial but you can still sometimes find grenadine that's made with pomegranate juice and that's a great way to do like magical witchy cocktails using grenadine or actual pomegranate you can like reduce pomegranate into pomegranate syrup and that'll be delicious in a cocktail um you can also though use pomegranate uh juice on the end of a feather as ink for spell work or in entering hecate's garden she had this great like kind of how-to where you basically heat pomegranate juice up until it's just steaming and then you take undyed parchment and you like dunk it in and pull it out and let it dry and then it's like basically stained this really kind of almost like light pink with the pomegranate juice which i think would just be like actually so gorgeous um the juice is also great for infusions though so i love the idea of making an herbal tea especially something with like skullcap or mugwort and doing it double strength and then when it's done adding like equal parts pomegranate juice to the tea concentrate that you've made like mm. when i was Gosh, when I was in high school, I used to love getting like pomegranate juice added into like teas and stuff because it makes them pink and delicious and it's like really healthy for you and it's got lots of vitamin C and vitamin D, Um, but also it's just like delicious and tart and how magical would that like tea be? Like a skullcap tea that's then like added into pomegranate juice that you drink before spell work, like... It's like Hecate's right there. Um, I also though wanted to include like a few great notes on pomegranates and grief, specifically from the Herb Crafters tarot deck. So uh, it represents the nine of air in my t- in the Herb Crafters tarot, and I just love the depiction of pomegranates on here with this like the knife and they're like cut open and laid out. But of course, like when you think about the story of like Demeter and Persephone and like Demeter like basically losing Persephone for half the year it's like the tie between pomegranates and the underworld and grief and like death and separation because some people also speculate that pomegranates could potentially have been like the fruit in the garden of eden that was like the forbidden fruit 
Um, so there's a lot of people work with like pomegranates when they're going through grief and like for spells related to grief and helping overcome it and helping you like move through it. But pomegranates, I think are really like a great lesson for all of us. And so I love this quote that was included in the book. It's from the prophet Khalil Gibran. And he said that the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. And pomegranates are really again they're just like a perfect description of grief because like they won't ripen off the vine right so like you have to wait you have to wait until it's the right time to harvest them and grief is like that right it's like pain is a path to wisdom but there aren't fucking shortcuts you have to like go all the way to the center of the labyrinth you can't jump a wall you gotta get through um and when your heart is hurting though you can think about just like drinking a bit of pomegranate juice to welcome Hecate to come and like sit with you until you're ready to stand proud once again. And also one of the suggestions in this herb crafter tarot book is to like tear open a pomegranate, enjoy the seeds and claim your underworld crown because something you can do is you can actually cut off the crown of a pomegranate and like put it on your altar or include it in other work that you do. But the last thing I wanted to do here is there's like this great, like other quote in here from uh, Pima Chodron, no love, no grief, claim your underworld crown. You are the sky. Everything else is the weather, which I just like love. So my sources today were Wikipedia, Entering Hecate's Garden by Cindy Brannon, The Herb Crafter's Tarot by Letitia Guthrie, ThisEnchantedPixie.org, and MinnetonkaOrchards.com. Wow. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? And yes, uh, I, I, I'm sure very timely. Um, yeah, but I didn't cry, so that's all I had to do. Yeah. I did it. So, you guys, the Minotaur. And of course, I'm going to be telling the story of the Minotaur today, because he famously lived in a maze. That has been incorrectly identified as a labyrinth ever since uh, now we're all going to be obnoxious and correct people aren't we it's a good uh, thing it's a good thing it's a good thing um i mean it does sound cool but technically it's wrong but first what even is a minotaur well it's part man part bull that much we know for sure but actually the original myth doesn't say exactly which part is which so we actually have a whole variety of depictions from the classical age before the matter was generally settled and agreed upon. So firstly, there's, I think it's kind of the lame version where it's like a bull body with a human head. Um, like full, yeah, that's no fun. That's literally no fun. It's, and the Minotaur is supposed to be kind of scary. So it's like, I'm not scared of that, you know? Putting like, a human head on a bull body just makes me laugh at it. Right. I'm like, oh, God, you know? Like, um, I'm embarrassed for you. I'm kind of embarrassed for you. Also, cows, like, really aren't that scary. Um, like, the the scariest part of any cow is a bull's horn. And we've kind of taken that out of the picture with the bull body man head version. So I... I wish I could give you zero out of five stars, but I can't. So I give you one star. <laughs> um, is what Tyra Banks would say. And um, it's a little wonky even. 
But then there's the centaur-shaped version, which is also, like, not where history landed on the whole thing, but having a human arms and bull horns does sort of add to the monstrous aspect of the Minotaur from the story. And it does make a certain sense considering the suffix tar being shared with centaur. Um, and a fun fact for all you Edith Hamilton nerds out there, the centaur version of the Minotaur appears in the illustrations uh, from the classic Wands and Fronts source material mythology by Edith, Edith Hamilton. So um, if you do have that book, the illustration of the Minotaur in that book is the centaur version. So, Oh man, I'm going to have to like go pull it off my shelf after this. And um, I'm sure you're right. I'm just excited to look at it. It's Yeah. Um, but eventually it was agreed upon by everyone that the scariest version of the Minotaur, which it is supposed to be kind of a scary story. We'll get to that later on. Um, and this is personally what I think of when I think of a Minotaur. So this is the version with the legs, torso, and arms of a normal human man, but the head and sometimes tail of a bull. And a popular variation on this motif depicts more of a hoof on the lower leg, sort of akin to a satyr, you know, like Mr. Tumnus. Um, but not like a full, not like a full um, bovine leg, and it's sort of just like a, like a hoofed foot. So similar to a satyr, but not quite. Um, and up, uh, as well as being scary, I do think it's pertinent to admit, um, I mean, but also speaking of being scary though, think about how much it would suck to fight for your life against a creature with like human arms and hands that can hold a weapon uh, versus a hoof, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, thumbs are really a game changer. Th thumbs are a game changer, y'all. Uh, but the Minotaur is also usually depicted um, as being very muscular and having, like, the strength of his bull lineage, if you know what I mean. Um, so this makes the Minotaur, pardon the term, kind of hot, even. And it's sort of like, ooh, I'm lost in a maze. What's this muscular bull man going to do with me? And at least that's the idea in some of the more erotic mosaics featuring the myth of the Minotaur that we uh, have on record. But truly, though, the myth is not that of a horny bull and pun fully intentional, but um, it's partially a tale about two horny women, though. So I think we I think we can set the scene now. Like, do you feel confident that people sort of know what a Minotaur is? I think people have many ideas about Minotaurs at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically we begin though, when King Minos is at war with his brothers over who gets to control the island of Crete. And the family dynasty has taken over. Minos is, of course, the heir apparent, and this matter, but his brothers do what brothers do, and they're being a fucking thorn in his side, so to speak. And being an island king, uh, Crete is an island, if you didn't know, um, he naturally turns to Poseidon for help. He prays for a sign in the form of a white bull, which, when it would appear, would signal Poseidon's favor, 
and then be sacrificed in his honor. And the fact of the matter is, Minos is the rightful heir, so Poseidon sends the bull. And the bull, in fact, shows up and is a beautiful and majestic creature as befitting a sign from a powerful god. And this is where good King Minos fucks up. He decides he's had his sign, so why not keep the bull instead as a symbol of his divine favor? Well, many QWP time. If you pray to a god for a sign and then promise to do a sacrifice, then the sign arrives. White bulls famously not being very common at all. Bad shit's gonna happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've promised to do a sacrifice and then you haven't. So obviously Poseidon is pissed. Yeah, do not recommend, y'all, if you like make a bargain with a deity. And then it, yeah, like keep the keep keep your half of the bargain and keep your half of the bargain. Um, so Poseidon's pissed, um, but he's a god, and gods are really, really good at revenge. So here's how it played out. See, the most precious thing to our idiotic King Minos was naturally his queen. And any god worth his salt would know that this was a weak spot, something that he could absolutely exploit. And he's, he's scheming, he's, he's revenging, okay? So Poseidon really went for it here because he made Queen Pasiphae is, I believe, the pronunciation. I'm sort of tripping over these Greek names today. I think Pasiphae sounds correct. And if people think it's wrong, then they can yell at both of us. Absolutely. But she is head over heels, absorbed in love with the Cretan bull. And so she became so lustful in her longing for this gorgeous white bull that she came up with a freaky little plan of her own. And I mean, really quite freaky. So kids, cover your ears. This is not a family-friendly episode at all because this bitch is about to get a little, a lot kinky even. So she's the queen, right? She's the queen of Crete, which is very popular in the Greco, you know, sort of the Adriatic world. Um, They're not Greek, but they're very powerful in that sphere, okay? She does not just have to go out and fuck the bull she loves in some field. She can hire help. She can make a whole splendid spectacle even, an event right? So she hires famed architect Daedalus to build her a wooden cow and a female cow, if that's not completely clear, which would be realistic enough to get the bull's romantic attention. But the wooden cow is hollow and is built in such a way that if Pasiphae crawls inside and positions her body just so, the bull Um, enters her in the way that she desperately desires. Um, So I told y'all this was going to be a little freaky deaky. So if if your kids are still listening, it's on you. 
Okay, though. So she's fucking the bull. She's coming. The bull is coming. It's sick. It's bestiality, even. And oh, yeah. Now she's pregnant. So, uh oh, spaghettio, right? And of course, this is ancient Crete. So there's no conversation of, I've made a huge mistake. Let's go to Planned Parenthood. Oh, no, 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 no. We're watching with horror as Pasiphae, the queen of Crete, carries the Cretan bull's love child to full term. And the fateful day comes, and the baby is truly a monster with the head and tail of a bull, completely at odds with his otherwise normal human form. But Pasiphae is a new mother, and you really cannot stop that kind of attachment. So she chooses to nurse the child and raise it as her own. Except things almost immediately take a turn for the worse, and perhaps, perhaps taking after his bull ancestors, the wee baby Minotaur, grows enormous quite quickly. And after weaning, it becomes clear that this unnatural abomination, even, cannot just eat normal food, or even like grass and oats, which would be preferred by his bovine relatives. No, 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 no. The Minotaur can only be satisfied by devouring human flesh. Dun, dun, dun! Right? Oh my god. Okay, so you almost have to imagine, though, the horrific things that would have led up to the ultimate fate of the Minotaur. I mean, my my thing is, I'm just like, I'm going through the horrific things that led up to them figuring that out. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, perhaps he's, like, killing his minders or his nannies in gruesome ways. Like, some, some sh- I mean, so we do have to keep in mind that this is a royal household in the age of ancient Greece. You really had to do a lot to the servants for them to put you away. You know, people killed their slaves all the time. Um, and... You know, his mom was a queen, so they probably looked the other way for quite a while before. For a very long time. Oh, God. Right. Um, to be a fly on the wall and like the servants' quarters there. Yeah, I mean, gosh, can you imagine trying to put that out on Craigslist? Oh, um, my God. <laughs> the seventh nanny this year. Right, right, right. Like Mary Poppins could not deal with this shit. Mary Poppins would be eaten. <laughs> so, eventually, though, we arrive at a pretty drastic conclusion. We cannot house train the Minotaur. Something's got to be done. So now we're back to Daedalus, who I guess has just been on retainer the whole time, like fixing the moats and shit. Like, I don't just know. Just getting ready for like cow business. Right, right, right. Um, you're just hanging out. I mean, you know, because she went through a whole pregnancy even. So we're talking like at least a year later. Yeah, plus um, all the time it took to figure out that he was a human muncher. So like... Right, right, right. I mean, you know, I mean, and people back in the day wouldn't wean their kids to like two or three a lot of the time because it's a lot easier to, to feed a toddler with a titty than to try to, you know, make baby food yeah. out of raw ingredients. So all of that to say, Pasiphae and Minos commission him to design an impossibly difficult maze to trap the Minotaur in to hide their shameful mistake from the world. 
And I guess they could have left it there, but oh, no, no. So the politics of being the king of Crete are coming back into play here because now instead of being at war with his brothers, the dumb King Minos is now at war with Athens, which is not a good idea, typically speaking, because his son was killed at the Panathenian festival. Well, the legend goes that he wins the war and decides to kill two birds with one stone and take his war reparations in the form of human sacrifices. In this way, honor is satisfied, and also he gets to feed his monster stepson, the Minotaur. And um, so here's how it went down, though. Uh, some people say every seven years. Some people say every nine years. Some people say every year. But every so often they would send seven young Athenian men and seven young Athenian maidens who were selected by lottery, and they would travel to Crete as a sacrifice. And they would be put inside the maze to get more and more lost and eventually all succumb to the Minotaur's hunger for flesh. Oh my god, it's like Hunger Games meets Saw. It's like Hunger Games and Saw. It's uh, absolutely delightful. And nobody ever made it back out alive, except for one man, Theseus. And see, Theseus, much like Katniss Everdeen, volunteered as tribute. And his father was Aegis, the king of Athens, and he was itching to prove himself as a hero. I mean, we have this young prince. He's going to be king one day. He wants to sort of prove himself and end this ridiculous Minotaur Hunger Games situation. So he makes his journey to Crete with the other offerings, and there he meets yet another impossibly horny Cretan noblewoman. Oh my god, what is in the water there, Crete? Come on. Really, though. And in fact, Ariadne was the daughter of King Minos and Pasiphae. So yet another woman in this family is just obsessed uh we we have this obsessive lust fueled mania also known as love at first sight and she uses her position though as the princess to sneak in and see theseus before the event so to speak and there's obviously not much she can do to ensure that he makes it out alive but she's got to be smart so she gives him an ungodly amount of string and a sword, which ultimately would be all he needed to be the one man to ever make it out of the Minotaur's maze. And I'm going to keep saying maze because it is a maze. It is not a labyrinth. Thank you very much for coming to my TED Talk. So the string, though, was to keep track of his way through the maze and then find the path back out. And I think the sword is pretty self-explanatory, don't you think? So essentially, though, it works. The Minotaur is slain, and he comes out holding the head. And Theseus and Ariadne have to get the hell out of Dodge, though, because King Minos is absolutely fuming. And he essentially created this fate, though, by disrespecting Poseidon. And, like, clearly this love match between Theseus, the prince of Athens, and Ariadne, the princess of Crete, would have been very politically advantageous. But everything is fully tits up because you just didn't sacrifice that bull. Like, this is why this has all been put into play. And 
that's not the point though so we have our lovers on the run ultimately theseus though i guess it wasn't that much of a love match um ditches Ariadne on the island of naxos where she does become the consort of dionysus her crown as dionysus's uh, sort of queen consort being preserved as the um corona borealis the northern crown um so you know she gets she gets hers in the end yeah i mean if you're gonna be anyone's consort right i mean big sam party right Uh, partying on an island with dionysus i think she kind of dodged a bullet yeah i'm like i think she won versus being a politician's wife so yeah oh we've all seen the good wife i'd much rather party with dionysus right 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 so which is all well and good. It's all well and good. But the Minotaur would have some satisfaction from the from beyond the grave as regards Theseus. So Theseus had told his father, King Aegis, that if he returned with white sails on the ship, then his mission had been a success. But if the sails were black, which was the original color of the sacrifice ship going to Crete, then he had perished trying to slay the minotaur so the king is doing this thing you know like an like an old sailor's wife even where he's watching from a cliff for the returning ship and maybe it was the ghost of the minotaur maybe it was theseus being a himbo wannabe hero but somewhere along the way they forgot the thing with the sails And so King Aegis catches sight of the black sails from the sacrifice ship. And just, this is so fucking dramatic too. He hurls himself onto a cliff, off of the cliff dramatically and into the sea, perishing in the crashing surf. And so technically this makes Theseus the king of Athens. And it also shakes him to his core. Because he's a fucking idiot? The yeah, whoopsie a, dude, a big deal. Yeah, that would no, no, no. Well, King Minos was the original fuck up. You know, <gasps> Theseus yeah. was just there to kill the 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 Minotaur and and keep the the Athenian youths safe, right? Um, but you know, here's my thing: the only one even kind of innocent in this story is the Minotaur himself, who a never asked to be born a monster, and B, could not help how he was being exploited. So I think King Aegis throwing himself off a cliff was the Minotaur's revenge even. Yeah, I mean, the Minotaur could have been like a very green undertaker, but they had to make it a fucking game. Right. Um, so, but that's the story, folks. You know, I hope you enjoyed it. And now, a taroscope. Woo! So, today, I have drawn Aries from our little kitty cat astro cards. Uh, And for you, I've drawn a very Aryan card, Justice. So, Mm. I love this. Speaking of Minotaur's Revenge. Speaking of. So, I feel like Justice is one of those cards that can, like... It can be, it can have like a really straightforward interpretation. So like if you have been wronged, get ready for justice to be served like on your behalf. But also if you've wronged someone, your time to eat crow is like round the corner. But 
if you want to get into the more like interpretive side of it, like at the core, right, justice, the card for justice is about truth. So in the less literal sense, this could indicate that you're like approaching a decision or some sort of choice that would impact your well-being, but also the well-being of others. And when it comes time to make this decision, you need to be sure that you're making it like making that choice out of accordance with like your highest self even if that means it's not necessarily like the fun, carefree choice to make, because this is like a you have to watch out for the long term greater good of yourself and of your loved ones. So to me, I kind of feel like for Aries, justice could be a bit of like a yellow light card for you. So like if you have a big choice or decision come up, maybe take a beat and like think about the alignment with your greater good instead of being like the wonderful quick to decide people that you are maybe just take a pause before you jump to conclusions this this is resonating a lot with me for reasons that i will discuss off the air but yeah excellent tarot scope this week shannon um so yeah so y'all we're back hi hello you missed us we missed you um i am really excited to be here with nick to be talking to you guys for everyone that's reached out we really appreciate it um with you want to get in touch and you want to like learn more about minotaurs or tell us what your weird minotaur fucking fantasies are uh, absolutely i'd love to hear your dirty dirty thoughts about the minotaur let us know you can email us at wandsandfrancepod at gmail.com or message us on uh instagram at wandsandfrancepod you can also join our patreon which is patreon.com slash wands and fronts pod and you'll get extra bonus content like uh, additional episodes during the month video recordings we'll sometimes do like monthly gatherings when we have time and the bandwidth for that like sort of virtual coven meetings um yeah and so nick how else can they support the podcast well you know we we got the facebook group which is at wands and fronts pod they can hit us up on Instagram at Wands and Fronts Pod. Um, and, you know, like Gmail, you could send us an email at uh, Wands and Fronts Pod. And, uh, but really, though, I think I'm, I, I will just say I'm most active on Instagram. You know, I posted some really fun reels about spring wildflower season recently. Um, you know, so it's like you get a little, a little taste of bonus content there for the low, low price of free 99. Free 99. But, um, but also you guys, what you could do for the low, low price of free 99 is you could like, subscribe and review wherever you're listening. Spotify is allowing people to rate podcasts and review them now, which is so 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 cool and so 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 good for us um we've we have charted twice on itunes now once in norway and once in romania so we'd love to to have lightning strike a third time yeah and who else who else is going to welcome us into your country also like big ups romania and norway yeah big ups romania and norway we love y'all um we still want to know who those four people in japan that download the episode every month or every week are and um, yeah but i think we scare them when we talk about them and then our japan downloads drop so uh sorry sorry but i'm curious we want to know you we just want to i mean we just want to say hey like don't be scared so um 
I guess to all of our horny, bullheaded, pomegranate-eating bitches. Wow. To those horny, bullheaded, pomegranate-eating bitches out there, we say blessed be, bitches. Blessed be, you horny bitches. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye now. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Split screen.